Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Effective Altruism Forum Weekly. My name is Colin Snell. Thank you to Zoe Williams, as well as the rest of the team at Rethink Priorities and Tier 3 Audio uh, for helping out with this episode and making sure that this podcast continues going on. Uh, as always, we cover the top-rated posts on the EA Forum each week, and this week we are covering the 9th to 15th of January. Uh, and these are summaries of all the top posts, like I said. Remember to like and rate the episode uh, and also the podcast overall on whatever platform you're listening to it on. It really helps this podcast grow and importantly is really gives a much better uh, insight into the actual metrics behind it. Uh, additionally, please, please, please share on Twitter or any other social media, uh, especially if you have a bunch of EAs who you know frequent the forum uh, in your in your network, which I'm sure a lot of us have overlapping EAs, of course. Without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump in with the philosophy methodology section for this week. The first article this week is called The Capability Approach by Ryan C. Briggs. This is an approach to human welfare that is focused on increasing the options or functionings available to people. This is in contrast to commonly used measures in EA like subjective well-being or preference satisfaction. The author argues that this is a valuable approach that is widely neglected within EA. However, it's influential in other communities, specifically international development more broadly. The system is agnostic about what people choose to do with the options that they're given, meaning it suits everyone and avoids optimizers like effective altruism pushing for our favorite functionings, you know, applying our own subjective desires or satisfactions onto other people and perhaps future people, hopefully future people that is. As an example, they suggest a godlike AI trying to maximize happiness has many failure modes. But an AI trying to maximize options and functionings, on the other hand, available to people is substantially less risky. The author notes that perhaps one of the reasons why the capability approach is not more widespread with an effective altruism is that because of how many potential functionings and ways to rate them there are, it's really messy to measure. Some indexes have tried on both a country and individual level. You can also note that being alive and having resources that equip you with more power or utility to do other things leads to many options, and you can work on those. This matches up with GiveWell and Open Philanthropy's prioritization of something like income gains, for example, and Live Saved as privileged metrics, likely influenced by the capabilities approach, in fact. The next article is called Giving What We Can Should Require Public Charity Evaluations by Jeff Kaufman. Giving What We Can labels charities as top-rated on their site if a charity evaluator they trust has recommended it. This includes if the initial evaluation was a really long time ago, as long as the evaluator still recommends it, or if there was little public information on the evaluation available. The author argues this is the wrong approach because A, the top-rated badge on individual charities is most useful for donors who are skeptical of donating to different charity funds, and B, for these skeptical donors, up-to-date public evaluations are much more important in decision-making as a tool to actually prioritizing and, in fact, feeling more comfortable donating. And actually, the next article we have is another Jeff Kaufman post called Giving What We Can's Handling of Conflicting Funding Bars. Some of the charity evaluators Giving What We Can relies on have different funding bars. 
So what is a funding bar? Using the baseline of cash transfers to the poor as an example, Founders Pledge requires meeting this just this bar, whereas GiveWell requires 10 times it, and giving what we can requires around three times it. Where something is recommended by Founders Pledge, but not GiveWell, they ask Founders Pledge for their internal cost-effectiveness estimates using usually not publicly available data to determine the inclusion. The authors suggest that the giving what we can inclusion criteria around three times cash transfer impact should be more should be made more transparent and that founders pledge should also make their estimates public. They also point out one example where a charity SCI has been removed from the top rated list pending further research due to uncertainty as opposed to expected value. Moving on to the object level interventions and reviews, we have AGI and the EMH Markets are not expecting aligned or unaligned AI in the next 30 years. By Basil Haperen, J. Zachary, Mazlish, and T. Maichow. If the markets were efficient and AI timelines were, in fact, short, we would expect to see high real interest rates currently. This follows from mainstream economic models, primarily because of the explosive growth expected when transformative AI occurs. This means either transformative AI timelines are long, unlikely to happen in the next 30 to 50 years, or the market is radically underestimating true timelines. The latter gives opportunities for philanthropists to borrow while real rates are low, or for anyone interested in investing more broadly to earn excess returns by betting that rates will rise. The next article we have is by Dhruv Makwana, and it's called Abolitionists in the Streets, Pragmatists in the Sheets, New Ideas for Effective Animal Advocacy. The author argues that, quote, animal advocacy within effective altruism is uniform in its welfareist thinking and approach, and that it has assumed with insufficient reason that all abolitionist thinking and approaches are ineffective, end quote. The author links to four other posts, which present the following case for bringing abolitionist approaches into consideration. First, abolition better helps with the large moral shift against speciesism needed to achieve complete animal farming abolition and increasing care for wild animal welfare. Secondly, current welfarist methods, things like corporate campaigns, cultured meat, etc., have diminishing returns. They don't challenge speciesism, and they are also sometimes in conflict with helping those in poorer countries, and there's bias towards improving rather than averting lives. Third, existing abolitionist approaches, things like advocating for elimination instead of reduction, are often dismissed as highly ineffective, but evidence for that is quite weak, in fact. And fourth, there are new approaches to abolitionism that haven't been tried very much or very thoroughly at this point. Things like public communication through documentaries, rights-based legal actions, and streets outreach are all potential approaches to abolitionism here. The author encourages more consideration and empirical study of these tactics. The next article we have is a link post to Big Wins for Farm Animals This Decade by James Osden. In the past decade, we've seen corporate change in a few different areas. Almost all relevant corporations now have a farm animal welfare policy, and cage-free pledges have also grown massively. And 88%, around 1,000 companies in total, have followed through when the deadline comes around for these cage-free pledges. We've also seen alternative protein improvements. Most major meat companies now have plant-based brands, and most major fast food restaurants serve them as well. Plant-based meat sales are up by two times versus this time five years ago, and 1,000 companies are bringing new products to the market. 
We have FDA approval for cultured meat and growing government support and recognition. And this is also mentioned in the fact that China's bioeconomy five-year plan and frequently the EU's new common agricultural policy both include cultured meats programs and policies. And third, the author talks a little bit about how in the last decade we've seen the moral circle expand even further. Some of this moral circle expansion has been encapsulated by seeing a massive increase in the number of policies and laws tackling chicken welfare. Additionally, Canada, the Netherlands, Norway, and Spain have all adopted the world's first national guidelines on fish welfare. The UK this year also enacted an animal sentence, sentience bill recognizing crabs, octopuses, and lobsters as sentient creatures, and animal advocacy has gone global. Over 200 groups advocate for farm animals across 100 countries. Lastly, a survey across 14 countries found 60-95% to of people believe chickens and fish can fact feel pain and emotions. None of this progress was inevitable. It was mostly the result of sustained and focused advocacy, in part from the EA community as well. This is incredible work that we're doing here. And that's not to mention numerous other organizations that are either loosely tied to effective altruism or completely outright not connected. So whether... EA, proto-EA, or not had the chance to be involved quite yet, it's really good work that we're seeing on the animal welfare front. The next article we have is called What You Can Do to Help Stop Violence Against Women and Girls by Akil. The author in this article argues for preventing violence against women and girls as being a top global priority. They summarize the literature, provide a landscape of existing organizations, create a cost-effectiveness model of the most promising prevention interventions, and use all of this to suggest actions for funders, charity evaluators, entrepreneurs, and others to get involved in the fight for stopping violence against women and young girls. In a two-page summary of the author's work, there are three top recommendations. First, support community-based interventions on shifting harmful gender norms and reducing violence. The author notes that supporting this is high-quality evidence of around $180 per disability-adjusted life year improvement. The author also suggests funding trials of radio and television dramas with the same aim of reducing violence against women and girls, and also notes that there's low-quality evidence to support this claim. However, they estimate around $13 per disability-adjusted life year for the impact of this. And lastly, the author argues that we should fund organizations with economic programs supporting women. This, of course, with the aim of expanding social and economic empowerment of women, which hopefully will be also reflected in institutional refinements. Additionally, actual direct violence reduction work might also be benefited by this. This is estimated at around $180 per disability-adjusted life year from the author. And for Liska's weekly forum post, we have Beware Safety Washing. Liska's TLDR of this is, quote, Don't be fooled into thinking that some groups working on AI are taking safety concerns seriously enough. Being safe with AI is hard and potentially costly, so there are incentives for companies to overstate how much they focus on safety. Using more specific terms, e.g. existential safety, externally validating work, creating safety standards, calling out safety washing, and clearly breaking down when and why the safety-oriented work of an organization is insufficient can help with the issue. Moving on to opportunities. The first is announcement called Announcing the Awardees for Open Philanthropy's 150 Million Regranting Challenge by Chris Smith and Alexander Berger. 
In February, Open Philanthropy launched the regranting challenge, aiming to add $150 million in funding to the budgets of outstanding grant makers at other foundations. After evaluation by experts inside and outside of philanthropy, the winners are the following. $45 million given to the Development Innovation Venture, supporting early stage projects with high impact potential in global health and development. We have $25 million given to the Eleanor Crook Foundation, which does research and advocacy to end malnutrition. Next, we have Global Education given to Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, $5 million. They grant to organizations developing and improving highly effective education interventions. Next, we have Global Health and uh, Innovation. Once again, award to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and this was $65 million. And this money will go towards vaccine development and distribution against tuberculosis and cholera. And next, we have the Tara Climate Foundation, which was given $10 million. And they work on climate mitigation in South, Southeast, and East Asia. You can read more about the work of each of these, as well as reasoning for granting in the post. The next article we have is called Non-Trivial Fellowship, Start an Impactful Project with 500 Pounds and Expert Guidance by Peter McIntry. In the post, Peter announces a seven-week online fellowship for pre-university students ages 14 to 20 in the EU and UK. Participants will be given around 500 pounds to start an impactful research, policy, or entrepreneurial project, with up to 5,000 in prizes for the best projects. No EA background is necessary, and please share the website with talented teens ahead of the application deadline, which is the 29th of January. Announcing the launch of the NYU Wild Animal Welfare Program, announced by Sophia Fogel. The NYU Wild Animal Welfare, or WA, program aims to use research and outreach to advance understanding about wild animals and how to improve their interactions with humans at scale. The program will launch on January 27th with a roundtable discussion called, quote, how can humans improve our interactions with wild animals at scale? You can join in person or online or sign up to the email list for updates, including different opportunities for early career researchers. Next, we have an announcement from Sari, which is, of course, Stanford's Accenture Risk Institute Biosecurity Interventions Technical Seminar. This is announced by James Lynn and Victor Warlop. BITS, the Biosecurity Intervention Technical Seminar, will be an eight-week-long technical deep dive where groups will explore crucial aspects of biosecurity interventions. It has a time commitment of two to three hours per week and includes virtual in-person at Stanford options for the pilot. The pilot will start in two to three weeks, and if you're interested and have at least a foundational understanding of undergraduate biology, you can apply by January 20th or check out the syllabus for more details. The next article we have is called Economic Theory and Global Prioritization, Summer 2023, Apply Now, by Tremel. Applications are now open until February 18th for the course Economic Theory and Global Prioritization, running August 12th through the 25th. It's targeted primarily economic graduate students or late-stage undergrad who are considering careers in global priorities research. Accommodation and transport to slash from Oxford will be provided for successful applicants. You can check out the syllabus and see reflections on how last year's course went. Moving on to the community and media section of the week, we have the first article announced by Chris Leong. Should the forum be structured such that the drama of the day doesn't occur on the front page? Oh, that, that almost rhymes. Ongoing discussions and comments 
Top suggestions include the community tab being used to discuss community issues with the front page for object level discussion specifically, or alternatively, an EA controversy tag that can be filtered out. There's also discussion on ensuring this doesn't suppress debate and that people can take their time replying without missing the chance for their comments to be seen. The next article is by Christina Schmitz-Banaz called My Personal Takeaways from EAG LAN Am or Latin America. Based on 22 one-on-ones, the author found that Latin American students in EA seem to feel pressure to get a master's and PhD abroad. This is for financial security and to be taken seriously. Not consider option value and cheaper tests of fit are also additional concerns that many of these students have, and they also announced having a hard time thinking ambitiously. They also found new founders tend to underplan for operations and for how their role will change over time. Despite these points, Christina was extremely impressed by the attendees and felt very positive after the conference. They suggest community builders talk to members about comparing career options, that students seek career mentoring, and someone create a public list of EA projects, ideas for things like HR, operations, and management. This is with the goal and aim to make options clear, and a service can also be created for founders to have a yearly career check-ins or other ways to evaluate how their responsibilities have changed and if it is still best for them to stay in the existing role that they're in. Next, we have a post from Sarah Tegeller and Patrick Gubin called EA Germany's Strategy for 2023. EA Germany, or EAD, intends to focus in 2023 on guiding people to more impactful actions via two approaches. First, direct approaches. These are things like online communications, EAGX Berlin, career one-on-ones, fellowships, retreats, etc. Secondly, we have indirect approaches. These are things like training community builders. In addition, they also will be working on efficiency services, e.g. operations support for grantees and local groups, such as being an employer of record or fiscal sponsor. The authors note that each of these three direct approaches, indirect approaches, and efficiency services all have associated metrics to allow assessment of impact. They also plan to explore new programs using a lean startup methodology, which includes prioritizing options, running MVPs, measuring results, and shutting down, scaling, and pivoting the program depending on results. Building Effective Altruism in Africa, My Experience Running a University Group by Tim K. Sankara is our next post. The author shares learnings from founding one of the first university groups in Africa. Most important, Sankara says, make it a fun place to be. Have icebreakers, find a good space, create respectful, healthy, and collaborative atmospheres to encourage people to come because, in part, it's not just meaningful, it's also enjoyable. The next point that Sankara mentions is engage with EA content. Members will be more engaged by someone knowledgeable, and it helps you answer specific questions as well. Third, Sankara recommends asking for help when you need it. Delegation helps you and helps develop members into future facilitators. Lastly, he writes that for African university groups specifically, he says, be mindful of university policies. They can vary, some exert heavy control as well. Focus on steering conversations towards a productive path, not selling EA ideals. Encourage members to engage with EA and take action outside of the group. 
are all recommendations that he provides for African university groups as well. The next article we have is from Stan Pinsent called A Study of Yay Orcs, Social Media. Stan Pinsent looked at the social media accounts of 79 effective altruism orgs and conclude some of the following key findings. First, Facebook and Twitter are more often used and have more followers than Instagram. Some long-termism and infrastructure orgs have stepped away from social media entirely. Posting regularly correlates weekly with a larger following. Facebook is particularly important for organizers with broad audiences like in animal advocacy, while Twitter is important for organizers with a primarily EA audience. Retweets and similar from top organizers within your cause area are particularly important in animal advocacy and long-termism, where the top three accounts dominate in followers, having 96 and 78% of followers respectively for their area. The author also identifies 10 EA orgs with great social media aptitude in at least one platform and approach that can be looked at for ideas and inspiration to other leaders or folks who might perhaps want to get into EA social media work. The next article is by Nikos and it's called Reflections on Witham Abbey. So in April of 2022, the Center for Effective Altruism, now Effective Venture Fund, bought Wintham Abbey which is 1480 Manor near Oxford as a conference venue. Regardless of if it was a good or bad decision in expected value or expected utility, the public perception outside EA has been that it was a lavish, expensive purchase that goes against altruistic principles, and there have been a ton of similar criticisms within EA around it. The author argues that EA relies on trust and positive perception from outside and inside the community. This needs to be taken into account when making decisions like perhaps buying an abbey. A formal announcement and transparency and reasoning for the purchase would have helped head off issues up front and made it easier to respond to criticism. Transparency is also important for EA in general to foster trust and shared learning. The next article is by Robert M. and it's called Speak the Truth Even If Your Voice Trembles. Some people stay silent on criticisms for fear of potential costs perhaps things like annoying a funder or not being refunded. The author argues people overestimate these outcomes, and that even in the worst-case scenario, you should pay the cost in order to increase community health and epistemics as a whole. They also suggest supporting those who pay costs as a result of rigorous, well-motivated criticism. Noticing what you are flinching from and being intentional about when you stay silent with openness as the default are all additional ways to ensure that you are speaking when you should be. Iron deficiencies are very bad and you should treat them by Elizabeth is the next article. The author's TLDR. If you are vegan or menstruate regularly, there's a 10 to 50% chance you are iron deficient. Excess iron is dangerous, so you shouldn't supplement blindly, but deficiency is easy and cheap to diagnose with a common blood test. If you are deficient, Iron supplementation is also easy and relatively cheap and could give you a half-standard deviation boost on multiple cognitive metrics. Plus, any exercise will also be much more effective. The author also notes that due to the many uses of iron in the body, they expect moderate improvements in many areas, although how much and where will vary by the person. The final article for this week is called On Living Without Idols by Rockwell. Living without idols allows you to manage those you respect diverging in course from you without your own framework or own approach to doing things that matter unraveling. 
the author talks to several examples that support this way of thinking. E.g., a fantastic mentor who then violated their ethical principles and lied, or the consistently predictable reaction that a community will, of course, be shocked when a member is revealed to be a serial killer. You can lean on others for support and guidance without letting that dictate what you believe. And this also helps you to not feel disappointed in someone without dismissing their good. I will say Carl Sagan is still probably a pretty safe idol for me to have, uh, but I think given Rockwell's article, he is probably going to be one of the only idols I ever truly have ascended that level of uh, inspiration in my uh, own psyche. But nonetheless, thank you guys very much for this week's episode, articles, and whatnot. Thank you to Zoe Williams. Thank you to Tier 3 Audio, and thank you to Rethink Priorities, as well, thank you to you, the community, for writing some wonderful articles and allowing me to explore some wonderful ideas while summarizing them for other folks in the community each week. Thank you guys so much, and as always, remember to stay engaged with your sources of meaning inside and outside of effective altruism. All right, keep being awesome, guys. I'll see you later.